Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Welcome back, everybody. This week we are covering the rest of the Joseph cycle. Last week we covered the curriculum uh, went through from 37 through, what was it, Ben? Uh, 41. 41. We actually covered the two chapters, two or three chapters that the curriculum skipped. Yeah, three. Right. And this week, we what we want to do is actually go back. I said last week I would talk about the, the Joseph cycle in the Quran. There's a surah on Joseph, and it's the only sustained narrative in the entire Quran. Any other story that's a biblical story that's found in the Quran is found here and there, uh, broken up. This is one sustained narrative of the story of Joseph. And there's some interesting things to to look at in comparing. And often what we do when we compare is we learn more about our own version of the story by looking at how it's told differently. We can also learn a little bit about how these stories develop and are altered over time, from the time that they were oral tradition until the time that they become what we call the Bible, which is this library, and then how they're read in early Christianity, and then how they show up in the Quran, and then today. And also, we want to go into the significance of the Joseph story to the Book of Mormon, just to review that from last time. And we'll have more to say about another connection between Joseph and the Book of Mormon this week. But before we do that, we wanted to mention a thoughtful comment that we got from a listener, some really thoughtful feedback, and and to respond to it. Ben, do you do you have that a quote to share from from the feedback that we got? Yeah. So someone that. Uh, I know is actually a a relative of mine that listens to the podcast. She made some comments about the episode that we did where we mentioned the relationship between Sarah and Abraham, especially with regard to Hagar and some really good insight in that. And after I shared this with Christopher, we were thinking about it more and Christopher ran across some, some good commentary that he'll share, but I want to share a piece from Anne's comment, uh, feedback on this that I think really, really points out some good things about Sarah. And one of the points that Anne was making in this is that Sarah often doesn't get, you know, a good treatment. And, and I, I haven't gone back and listened to the podcast, but I think that was one of the things that I felt when I was reading through the text this time is that, you know, just on the surface, Sarah isn't treated very well in the text. And, and so we really have to kind of take in the whole situation and, and put ourselves in her place to understand what's going on and appreciate um, her character and situation that she's in. So let me read what Anne said here. She says, when she does, that is Sarah, when she does what is in her power to make the prophecy happen by giving her younger servant to her husband to bear a child, she then mocks Sarah for it. That is, Hagar mocks Sarah. Can you imagine being Sarah in that situation? You are trying to do what you can can to bring forth a blessing. 
you give your husband permission to impregnate a slave, and the vessel of that blessing turns around and deals with you contemptuously. All through her married life, Sarah endures things that are done to her as she tries to be obedient and support her husband. She isn't consulted about anything or allowed to choose anything other than how to handle Hagar. I can't honestly say that I wouldn't have sent her away too if I was in Sarah's shoes, and after all she had been through in the name of this God who keeps talking to her husband, time and time again blessings for her husband are a curse for her. So as we you know realize this relationship between Sarah and, and Hagar is is more complex than sometimes the text on the surface presents it as as we, we try to analyze this then you know some of these these ideas start coming out and and Christopher you were mentioning when we were on a, a phone call earlier today some interesting things that you came across that goes along with with Anne's commentary that she made yeah you know so I I was meeting with uh, one of my mentors uh, over a vacation down in, in LA and he explained something to me that you know I, I think it's something that that I I it's not that I didn't know it altogether, but the way it just came together. And so I wanted to share that. So he points out that, well, I guess there was something I didn't know. So he points out that there's a surrogacy happening and that's clear that that's something that I did know. Right. Right. So Hagar is going to be a surrogate mother for Sarah. If we think about the Rachel story, the text tells us that the children that Rachel's slave has with her husband are going to be on her knees. That means when the child is born, the, the child is placed on the knees of the parent. And so Whatever child is uh, born from the from the slave, from her slave, her maiden, and her husband is going to be her child. So it's the same with Sarah. This is the idea as as Sarah uh, suggests it and or agrees to it. It is it is suggested by her and according to the text, right? What happens next, though, and this is what I didn't realize, this is what I didn't know, is that Abraham chooses to marry Hagar. And so that changes everything. She's she's not just a surrogate anymore. He marries her. She becomes now the first wife. The first wife is not the one who first married the the patriarch, right? The husband in this case. It's the one who first has the child. And so this changes everything. Now again, I still think as much as I can sympathize with with at least the part that you read from the feedback, and I thought it was really thoughtful feedback and it really helps to put us in the place of Sarah. But the context, right, is this patriarchal context where polygamy is is accepted also. And Sarah, you know, she's thinking she's the one, and now she's not the one. She's the other. You know, she's the second. Mm. She's not the first. And so while while everything that, that we got from the feedback, again, gives us insight into Sarah's positionality, right, in this story, it's just not the perspective that the text has, right? That the perspective of the text is, is patriarchal. And so, you know, things have changed a lot since then. And we, we have a long way to go still. But I really appreciate the, the feedback and, and, you know, what it shows us about, the, about Sarah's point of view. Well, one of the things you were saying, Christopher, also is just to talk about that perspective of the text with regards to women you know, not just in the case of Sarah, but but there's also the case of Leah and Rachel and how the text talks about them and treats them that kind of brings out this point that, again, the text does not view women the same way that we as a society view women today. 
That's right. Yeah. So another uh, tidbit I picked up from another from a friend, and that's Trevin Hatch, is you know because I hadn't really looked at. I'm not reading the the Hebrew. He's he's reading the Hebrew, and I didn't realize that the name of Rachel means you lamb, and the name of Leah means cow. And that there are these puns in the text. You know, when it says that Rachel is coming with the flocks, the coming, this verb is ba'ah. It sounds like a, like a lamb bleeding, right? And so it's, she's coming with the, with the flocks means she's buying with the flocks. There, I mean, it means both. It's the kind of coming that an animal does, not the kind of coming that a person does. Well, well, it's a pun, right? So both the, mm. the actual, there is a verb to come, right? She's coming and she's also buying is the pun, mm. right? And so she's a lamb and the other, the other, you know, Leah's a cow. And so the really the whole text, there, there are a number of puns on these names and the whole point of the text and the, and the chiasmus that, that is present in the text that shows you the central point of the story is that well, to put it bluntly, the way it looks in the text is that all of Jacob's animals, Rachel, Leah, and his flocks, are having lots of offspring. Hmm. And he's becoming, right? So he's having all of these, his, all of his animals are having offspring. And that's how, you know, it, it's like Rachel and Leah are just one more animal hmm. in a part of, part of Jacob's flocks. So, of course, we don't see women that way today. But that's how it looks in the text. So, yeah, that's another part of the text that's something that you can either wrestle with or just say, well, that was a mentality that we don't have to accept today to still understand uh, how they lived. Yeah. And the point of the text remains that he is being blessed in both ways that he was that it was promised to him. Right. One, he's having offspring with his wives. The other is that he's he's prospering. Right. Well, let's see. It's not, it's not prosperity that he's blessed with. He's going to have offspring and they're going to inherit a land which hasn't happened yet. And, and we continue to, to wait for that to happen in, in the story as we go through the text and that his posterity will be a blessing to others. So I don't, I don't know why I said, I, well, I do know why I said prosperity because of the prosperity that he does enjoy. So again, I don't know if the, if the offspring Obviously, the offspring that is being promised are his seed. That's what the text tells us. But part of the blessing that we do see that happens to him and to others around him, because it happens with Joseph in this week's reading. When Joseph is living in Potiphar's house, Potiphar's house prospers. When Jacob is living in Laban's household, his household prospers. So that's the blessing, right? Mm -hmm. So if it happens to those around him, it's probably happening to him too, right? And so that is happening. He's his flocks are multiplying. Of course, we saw him. And in some sense, it looks like he's cheating Laban. He says God did it, although he also tells us how he did it, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. So that's you know, in, in review and in response to to uh, to some thoughtful feedback. Keep the feedback coming. We really appreciate it, and and we'll keep sharing what we learn. As as mentioned, and I think I hope it's in every episode in the um, in the intro. We are not biblical scholars, <laughs> and we we do know how to read closely and and think deeply, and we read lots of commentary, and we're learning and we're sharing and we're happy to learn from you, and uh, as much as we share from you. So please keep sharing your comments and feedback with us. Thank you for that. Yeah, 
So, Ben, the other thing that I said I would do last week, you brought up the relationship between Joseph, the story of Joseph and the Book of Mormon. And I was going to ask you if you just quickly recap that. And then I said that I would go into the Joseph cycle in the Quran and then and compare it with the with the Joseph cycle in the Bible. And that would take us back to the beginning of the story of Joseph. And we'll go through that and move through and get into this week's reading. So sure. you want to start with the, the Book of Mormon? Yeah. So it's pretty obvious from the outset of the Book of Mormon that the story of Joseph is very influential on the narrative. What you see is you you see Lehi when he gets the brass plates, which is kind of the, this first story in, in the book, right, of, of Nephi going back and getting them. He he starts reading them and he's learning all these things. And one of the things he he sees is an account of Joseph. And so we get some things in the Book of Mormon that are ostensibly the writings or prophecies or story of Joseph. And some of it is given to us right in Second Nephi chapter 3, where he talks about the prophecy of Joseph. Lehi talks about the prophecy of Joseph. And other things are given to us at a few other spots throughout the Book of Mormon. And they're pieces that relate to the Joseph story that aren't in the Bible. But the reason that they're significant to the Book of Mormon is because you can see how strongly this narrative of Joseph influences the narrative of the Book of Mormon. And even straight from the prophecy in Second Nephi chapter 3, you see that the name Joseph is very closely associated with Joseph Smith. And so Joseph Smith identifies with this, and it can be one of the reasons that it's strongly prominent in the Book of Mormon narrative. What happens is the the idea, even even the whole structure of the story of Joseph becomes solidified within the narrative of the Book of Mormon, and that's that Joseph is separated from his brethren, taken into another land, and God does that for a purpose. And the purpose is so that he can then save his family at a later date. And so the idea is that the Nephites, who are and not just the Nephites, I should say, the descendants of Lehi, who are what they call themselves a remnant of the seed of Joseph, right? So they see themselves as these descendants. They are separated into another land so that at a later date, what they do and say that becomes you know part of the record of the Book of Mormon can come back to save the rest of the house of Israel. And so that's sort of the idea there, the the type that's put in place. And so there's a story, or at least a piece of a story, that we get later in the account of, of Captain Moroni when he tears his, his garment that then gets related to the Joseph story. And finding out where this comes from, where this narrative comes from, and how it fits in is a little strange, and you kind of have to follow the hearsay of it to, to get to that. And I think when we get to that point in the text... I'll bring that in to sort of fill out where that narrative in the Book of Mormon could potentially be coming from. Thanks for recapping that, Ben, and we'll look forward to hearing from you on the on where the story of Joseph fits into this week's reading in the Book of Mormon. I was going to say in the Quran, and, <laughs> and now going into the Quran. What, let me let me just start by saying, Ben, you and I were talking about this earlier today on a phone call. Why why do this? So again. I can think of multiple reasons. I'll, men I'll mention them in, in random order. The first one that comes to my mind is that we have recently had a message from 
it was Elders Bednar and Gong at a conference on Islam at BYU that Latter-day Saints should get to know Islam and to understand it, and that they would be putting out, that the church would be putting out a pamphlet, is it? A brochure, something like a, a pamphlet, right? Yeah. On Islam, and that has come out. And so you can download that. I'm not sure. I don't remember what it's called, but you can find it online and download it. And of course, because I'm not a biblical scholar, I am a Quranic scholar and so on, or an Islamic scholar, and so I, this is on my mind. And then there, there's another reason to do this. Again, a, a comparative approach gives us greater insight into our own tradition. And this is something I've experienced. So as I studied Islam, and I think, Ben, you have, you've had the same experience, I've gotten to know my own tradition better through that comparative approach. Would you say that's true of you too, Ben? Oh, absolutely. You start seeing how it is that people connect to God. And what it does is it enriches your own experience and, and gives it more meaning than it might otherwise be before. Right. And over in uh, on our sister podcast, I also co-host that, that one with Riley Risto. We go into it because it's a contemplative Christian podcast. And so that means it's about mysticism, although that, that's sometimes a, a scary word or a misunderstood word. It's about contemplation. And so it turns out that when you're looking at, at those in each tradition who are contemplative, they don't really have that many differences because they're, they're not really focusing on theology. They're focusing on experience, right? Uh, an experience of God. They're not, they're looking for access to the essence rather than talking about the manifestation of God. Mm-hmm. So in looking at the, at the Quran, as I said, this is the, the only sustained narrative in the Quran. So I wanted to do this and to go through and go through and see some of the differences and some of the similarities. Although I'm focused on the differences because we know the story or we're going to cover the story. And I'm going to start from the beginning of the Joseph story and go through the end. And there's one more thing that, that we're doing here. And that is we can see because, and I'm working from a, from a book. I'll, I'll mention the name of the book. It's called The Quran and the Bible. Text and Commentary by Gabriel Said Reynolds. Uh, Gabriel Said Reynolds is a uh, Quranic scholar at University of Notre Dame, which is in your neck of the woods, isn't it? Or is it? It's somewhere I stopped on my way last time I visited you. Put it that <laughs> well, way. Notre Dame's in Indiana. I'm in Missouri. It's a couple states okay. over, but it's Midwest. Sure. It, it is somewhere I stopped on my way to see <laughs> you. And and what he has is the text of the Quran with uh, compared with the text of the Bible. And the text of the Quran here is is a good translation. It's by Ali Kuli Qarai, which is recommended by uh, Dr. Joseph Lombard, also, who is one of the the scholars who worked on the study Quran, another good choice. And so it's good text, a good word-for-word text, and it gives us uh, a lot of these uh, differences, and it explains that most of the differences that we see in the story are attested already before they show up in the Quran, they're attested in the early Christian reading of the story, uh, a lot of them in the Syriac Christian tradition. Some of the differences are, are found in you know rabbinic tradition, maybe in Talmud, or maybe um, some in Aramaic poetry, but most of them are found in early Christian readings of the story. And some of them, the readings are quite different from what the text says on the face of it, right? And so that becomes interesting. So I'll just start with Joseph's dream. The, the first difference that we see is that Joseph only tells, that the Quran only tells us of one dream. 
It's the dream of the planets and the, the sun, the moon, and the planets, right? The sun and the moon, which are thought to represent his parents, and the 11 stars representing his siblings. And so when he tells his father about this dream, rather than his father saying, well, that's a really preposterous dream. What you, my mother and I, your mother and I are supposed to bow down to you. That's what it says in the in the biblical text, right? That he has this reaction to it in that yeah. way. Although it does also say that he ponders it. You know, it indicates that he sort of ponders it in his heart. So in the Quran, it tells us he says, "Don't tell your brothers about this, hmm. uh, because they may plot to kill you. Right? They're, they're gonna they're they're gonna want to kill you if you tell them this." So he's sort of already knowing that. And the text tells us that at the same time that God is already preparing the way. As, as the Bible tells us, you know, it's, it's God who puts Joseph in Egypt and it's God who gives him the power to interpret the dreams. And so the Quran tells us in verse six of Surah Yusuf, this is all from the Surah called Yusuf or Joseph, which is the 12th Surah of the Quran. That is how your Lord will choose you and teach you the interpretation of dreams. And complete his blessing upon you and upon the house of Jacob, just as he completed it earlier for your fathers Abraham and Isaac. Your Lord is indeed all-knowing and all-wise. So right away, as soon as his brothers hear about this in the in the Quranic text, they're already plotting to kill him. It's not later on when they see him coming. Oh, here comes that dreamer. The Bible tells us, and Jacob has this fear that a wolf will eat Joseph if his brothers take him. And so here in uh, Ali Kulikaray's translation, there's a good pun that probably isn't in the Arabic, but they say, you know, let us take Joseph with us so he can play. And he says, well, I don't know. I'm afraid a wolf will eat him. They say, don't you realize we wish him well? I read that and I thought, wishing well. They throw yeah. him in a well. <laughs> the Bible says it's a pit, but in the, in the Quranic story, the people who come along that they end up selling him to do put a, a bucket down. You know, they put, they, they, uh-huh. They try to get some water out, and they find Joseph instead. So Joseph is told a day will come at that point when his brothers don't know his identity, but he will know what they did, and he'll he'll be able to tell them what they did. So again, a lot of there, there's a lot of knowing in Jacob and even in Joseph, a lot of foreshadowing. Yeah, that they get to know these things in advance. And so Jacob, you know, when they come and bring him the tunic from Joseph, and it has blood because it's the same story as in the Bible. He doesn't actually buy the story. They tell him that Joseph was eaten by a wolf. One of the reasons he doesn't believe them, again, he was already alerted to something, you know, something like this might happen. He said that they might try to kill him. He said he was afraid he would be eaten by a wolf, but he doesn't buy it partly because his tunic isn't torn. Hmm. And so that's an interesting point too, right, Ben? Because yeah, there, we're we're going to go into that more into this this the, the the tunic whether it's torn whether it's not torn the different versions of the story right. So they it says then that they sold him for a cheap price. They they come along you know the guys come along and and put a bucket down and they don't you know even though it says it's dry in the Bible and the Quran they try to put a bucket in there and they get out Joseph instead of water. And so his brothers sell him. The Quran tells us for a cheap price. This is a phrase that occurs often in the Quran for selling something of value for a cheap price that for me reminds me of, of the Latter-day Saint temple text. Do you know what I mean, Ben? No, it's not coming to mind. Selling tokens the, for a cheap price. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Right? For money. For, right. Exactly. And so, so that stood out to me. 
Now, Potiphar, once he brings Joseph in, you know, he purchases Joseph or he's coming into Potiphar's house, put it that way. He says that he and his wife, who's named in the Quran, her name is Zuleika, might adopt Joseph. And so that becomes comparable to Moses later on, right? Mm. Mm. The idea that they, that they might adopt him into their family. And the Quran tells us, Thus we did establish Joseph in the land, and that we might teach him the interpretation of dreams. God has full command of his affairs, but most people do not know. So the idea that he's going to teach him the interpretation of dreams, that he's again, in, that God is in control, and God is the one bringing him in, into this household for his purposes, is very clear in the Quran. Now I'm going to read a few verses from 22 to 28. When he came of age, he gave him judgment and sacred knowledge, and thus do we reward the virtuous. The woman in whose house he was solicited him. This is Zuleika, the wife of Potiphar. She closed the doors and said, Come. He said, God forbid. He is indeed my Lord. He has given me a good abode. Indeed, the wrongdoers do not prosper. She certainly made for him, and he would have made for her too, had he not beheld the proof of his Lord. So it was that we might turn away from him all evil and indecency. He was indeed one of our dedicated servants. So this proof that's mentioned is not explained, but it will be explained later by, by the exegetes. They raced to the door, and she tore his shirt from behind, and they ran into her husband at the door. She said, What is to be that requital of him who has evil intentions for your wife except imprisonment or painful punishment? He said, It was she who solicited me. A witness of her own household testified, saying, If his shirt is torn from the front, she tells the truth and he lies. But if his shirt is torn from behind, then she lies and he tells the truth. So when he saw that his shirt was torn from behind, he said, This is a case of you women's guile. Your guile is great indeed. And so the text there goes into not just a woman with guile, but women's guile. Oh, it's an accusation against all women. <laughs> it is. It is, as a matter of fact. And even in reading Kiel and Delitch, some, some commentary on the Bible, I found that it is well attested, they tell us. These are very conservative. Uh, com I can't remember when they wrote. I want to say it was 19th century. But they tell us that the unchastity of Egyptian women is well attested all the way back to Herodotus. So I don't know that. <laughs> And, and, and all the way forward to Jacob Burkhardt, who tells us that, that women of no class in uh, Cairo are chaste, something like this. Now, this is obviously sexist and, and even misogynistic, but it's interesting that the text deals with women that way, but the exegetes later on actually smooth things over uh, for women, very, very, very interestingly. So Joseph is later thrown into prison in this story, but we don't know why. Like you, there's no evident reason when it happens. And so there's a passage in the Babylonian Talmud that tells about Yusuf and Zuleika's plan to sin together. Notice that in the text it says that she goes for him and he would have gone for her if it hadn't been for this proof. So this proof, as preserved in one of the most famous uh, exegetes, Al-Jalalain, I should say two of these, this is a pair of exegetes, uh, Jalal and Jalal, or Jalalain. And they say, they, they give this story which is that he saw a vision of his father that warns him. And so that's the warning that the, that the Quranic text refers to. And again, that's something that's attested before the Quran in the, in the Christian tradition. So I want to read again from verses 30 through 35, because this, is, this happens next. Some of the townswomen said, The chieftain's wife has solicited her slave boy. 
He has captivated her love. Indeed, we see her to be in plain error. When she heard of their machinations, she sent for them and arranged a repast and gave each of them a knife and said to Joseph, Come out before them. So when they saw him, they marveled at him and cut their hands absentmindedly. And they said, Good heavens, this is not a human being. This is but a noble angel. She said, He is the one on whose account you blamed me. Certainly I did solicit him, but he was continent. And if he does not do what I bid him, so this is a second temptation, he will surely be imprisoned and humbled. He said, My lord, the prison is dearer to me than to what they invite me. If you do not turn away from their, uh, turn away their schemes from me, I will incline towards them and become one of the ignorant. So his lord answered him and turned away their stratagems from him. Indeed, he is the all-hearing, the all-knowing. Then it appeared to them, after they had seen all the signs of his innocence, that they should confine him for some time. And so now he does go to prison. And this, again, is comparable to an Aramaic poem that predates the Quran and actually Maybe the, there are different versions, some with the, with the, without the cutting of the hands, some with the cutting of the hands. It looks like it, it was, uh, it's something that developed. And so he's in prison now and he meets the, the cupbearer and the baker. And the cupbearer is the one who's supposed to remember him, right? So the cupbearer goes to Pharaoh and he forgets about Joseph. Well, the Quran tells us it's Satan that made him forget Joseph. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And so in the Quran, Yusuf interprets Pharaoh's dream from prison, not in front of Pharaoh. And it's later on that he's summoned before Pharaoh. And when he does appear before Pharaoh, now Zuleika shows up again and she admits her guilt. And so that she comes clean. Hmm. And the Quran tells us, do you not see that I give the full measure and that I am the best of hosts? This is a description of, of Joseph himself from verse 59. And I wanted to compare that with Abraham because Abraham is, as we have pointed out, the best of hosts. And we see that his son, well, let's see, his nephew tries to to do the same. We see that Rachel is chosen because she does so. Uh, also, uh, Rebecca before Rachel, right, is, is very mm-hmm. hospitable in that in the same way that Rachel later is. And so this idea of being the best of hosts is important and shows up here in verse 59. Now, in the Bible, one of the brothers finds his money in the bag before he gets to Canaan. But in the Quran, they all find their money in their bags at the same time when they get back to Canaan. Isn't that interesting, Ben? Do you know why? So you have one brother that finds his money on the way home and the rest when they get home. In the Quran, everybody gets home before they find it. Do you have any thoughts about that? I'm not really sure. I'd have to think about it for a bit. I mean, they do in the Bible, they do all find it eventually when they get home but right. but having one find it first uh yeah i'm not sure what the function would be there the only thing that it tells me is that it just points out that they didn't turn around when that happened sure <laughs> they're scared <laughs> right yeah so they're very much they're very disconcerted in the biblical story but when they get home and they discover this in the quran they're all happy about it they say look at this we have everything we went for plus uh, we didn't pay anything for it we got all our money too so in the Quran, Joseph, once they come back, you know, and they bring Benjamin, Joseph actually pulls Benjamin aside and reveals himself to Benjamin before he reveals himself to his other brothers. And I thought that was interesting. So there's a lot of, a lot of foreknowledge in the Quranic story that doesn't show up in the Bible, you know, where people actually know what's going on, where yeah. they don't in the Bible. Jacob doesn't even, you know, as I said, he doesn't buy into the story that the brothers have. He knows ahead of time that they're up to something. 
here, you know, Benjamin gets to know who his brother is before everybody else. I know that you have some thoughts about what's going on with Joseph in, in terms of his treating, his treatment of his siblings and where he is in his heart, right, with respect to them. And so maybe that, that's something to think about. In the Quran, uh, Yusuf says that whoever has the cup, so he puts the cup in, in Benjamin's bag, right? It's Benjamin's bag, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. So he puts it in Benjamin's bag and he says, whoever has the cup in his bag, when, when he says, look, somebody's stole my cup, he will be my slave. But in the Bible, the brothers say, no, no, whoever has the cup shall be put to death and everybody else will be slaves. The rest yeah. of them become slaves. So that's an interesting difference too. Well, it's Joseph later does say that in the Bible. He says, no, you know, that's right. Whoever has it will be my slave. So they don't necessarily conflict, but they're, you know, they do, the order is different. Yeah, the order of the telling is different now. In the Quran, the brothers say, if one of them has stolen, by the way, this is really interesting. If one of them has stolen, which again, they're saying, we didn't steal. Look, if one of us stole, he should be put to death in the Bible or in the Quran, they, they would be, uh, he would be slave. But they say, if one of us did steal, this wouldn't be anything new. You think, wait a minute, what, what's going on? Somebody, <laughs> one of them has stolen before. And it turns out that the exegetes tell us that Joseph had stolen one of the idols from Laban. Hmm. The ones that we, we covered as being stolen by that Rachel. By Rachel. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So he stole one of them so he could smash it. Right? He's smashing oh, the idol. Oh. That's different from what Rachel's up to when she's stealing the idols in the Bible. Sure. Now, when, when Joseph's father finds out what has happened to him, the text, you know, the, the Quran tells us that his eyes turn white with grief. And that's interpreted by the exegetes to say that he's blinded. And then later on, there's this garment that's a little bit difficult to understand who's coming or going in this portion of the text. And this is around, well, there's this garment that, that actually heals his blindness that shows up in verse 96. But it, again, it's not exactly clear what's going on, like who's coming or going. But it's in some way, the garment goes from Joseph to his father, and it heals his blindness. He puts it over his eyes, and it heals his blindness. And that garment has the it says uh, it has the smell of paradise. Now, is this happening in Egypt, or is this happening before when he Joseph is supposedly killed? It's so it's after. It's after he has supposedly been killed. Uh, Joseph is in Egypt, and Joseph is sending the garment to his father in some way. Oh, with his brothers, or just in some way it's not? With his brothers, okay. yeah. Again, it's, okay. it's, it's a little bit unclear who's coming or going, uh, okay. but, it, but it looks like he's sending it with his brothers to his fathers. That's how I read it, Okay, even, even though it's, it's difficult uh, reading, which isn't always the uh, – usually, it's not even usually the case for the Quran, but here – Things are a little bit unclear. But this garment is a garment that was worn by Joseph, uh, I read, around his neck. So it's not his tunic that his brothers take in both stories, in the Bible and the Quran. So it can't be that garment. But it's this other garment that he has around his neck. And it has the smell of paradise, of the garden. And his father recognizes that. And that reminded me of something that I read years ago from Hugh Nibley, who said, but he said it of the the garment, the tunic that that Joseph's father made for him, right? That it that it was, mm -hmm. or that he gave him. Again, I'm not sure. It's it's not clear. Yeah, the coat of many colors, or right. Well, the coat of many colors idea comes from Luther. That's a, a Luther's translation from the Vulgate, right. right? It's just a tunic. The idea is this is a tunic that comes down to his wrists and down to his ankles. Yeah, long sleeve. Right. 
And again, we covered last week, it's very much, you know, he gets clothed in, in a similar manner by Pharaoh, right? This is a symbol of his power. Yes, this is authority. Mm-hmm. So th- it's interesting because Nibley had this, I, I don't remember the details of it, but this idea that that that, was, that that garment was Adam's, and that's why it had the smell of paradise on it. And so I found that similarity between the two texts, and I thought that was interesting. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of discussion around clothing in these scriptures and and in the Latter-day Saint tradition, we read a lot of meaning into that. Whether whether it's there or not is is another discussion, but we read a lot of meaning into it because so much of, of the way that we interpret scripture is through a temple lens. And so a lot of things become contextualized that way. That's right. So then in the in the Quran, you know, we we notice in the biblical story that the brothers when they are before Joseph, who knows what they did because they did it to him, but they don't know who he is. When they tell him the story, and I know you're going to go into this, so I'm not going to go into detail, but when they tell him the story of what happened to him, because they're talking to him, but they don't know it, right? What happened to Joseph? Yeah. They tell it from their father's point of view, and I'll leave it at that and let you go into that later. But the point is that they don't actually they don't confess. They never confess any wrongdoing. Right. And so it's interesting because in the Quran... Or at least not yet. Not yet. But in the Quran, Yusuf's brothers ask Jacob to pray for forgiveness for them. Whereas in the Bible, they don't, they don't repent. At least not yet. In the Bible, we have that Rachel dies before Jacob goes to Egypt. Eventually in the story, and we'll probably have to go back and, and you know, because we, part of what I'm comparing from Quran we covered last week and part is this week's reading and we may want to go into more detail. But in the end of the story, when Jacob comes to Egypt, uh, after his brothers have come and gone, his wife comes with him. Rachel comes to Egypt with him. Now in the Bible, as we covered last week or the week before, Rachel is dead. She died giving birth to Benjamin. Right. But in this version of the story in the Quran, she comes to Egypt and the reason she has to come she has to fulfill the prophecy that she will bow down. So the Quran tells us, this is Joseph, and he set his parents high up on the throne, and they fell down prostrate before him. So it's interesting what, what happens here too with the exegetes, because on the one hand, the Quran has that they come, that she comes rather, so that this prophecy can be fulfilled. On the other hand, the exegetes see a problem with Jacob and Rachel bowing down to Joseph, who is but a man. They should only bow before God. And so they try to explain that away. At the same time that she comes and fulfills the prophecy, they give explanations that that apologize. It reminds me of uh, an explanation that I shared with you from the rabbinic tradition of why Jacob dealt so harshly with Rachel when she says, Jacob, give me kids. You know, I don't have any kids. And he says, who am I, God, to give you kids? That's not my place to, to give you kids. And the rabbis thought that she, he was being very rude to her. And they couldn't, you know, this is something I picked up from, from Jabra Ghanem. I've mentioned him before on the podcast. He's got his YouTube channel, Jabra's Gospel Thoughts. Great resource for Come Follow Me. So Jabra mentions this on his uh, YouTube channel, that they thought that he was being rude. And so they just couldn't be with this because he's our father, Jacob. How can he be rude to his wife? And so the explanation they come up with, which reminds me of these Muslim exegetes here, is he was being rude to her on purpose because, as we've pointed out on the podcast before, one of the major themes of the Bible is 
that God hears the call of the oppressed. So he's oppressing her so that she will call out to God and he'll have pity on her and give her children. <laughs> Isn't that funny? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Ben, that's the run through of the story from the Quran, you know, just really focusing on the on the major differences in the story. Yeah, excellent. Lots of lots of interesting little uh, nuances there and, and additions to it. So, I mean, as we go into this story starting in chapter 42, you know, right off the bat, Jacob is sending his sons to Egypt because of the famine. He's sending them there to get grain. And when they meet up with Joseph, it's, the text says that he treats them harshly. And there's at least a couple different ways of looking at this. You know, it, it's not clear whether Joseph already, as soon as he sees them, is, has already forgiven them and that this is simply some sort of a some sort of a ruse or a test to to play with them or to test to make sure that they're not going to treat Benjamin in the same way or it's possible that he really hasn't forgiven them yet and he's got some animosity here that he's still trying to act out and then as the text goes on you see him softening stage by stage to the point where he does finally fully forgive them and I'm partial to the latter interpretation of that. I don't I don't dismiss that there is some sort of a test here where he's trying to protect Benjamin, but I think what we're seeing in here is a progression, a very human experience that Joseph's having of finally seeing his brothers again and the initial reaction is is that of of anger and the way that he treats them. I mean, you know, these aren't just tricks he's playing on them. Like he throws them in prison for 3 days. It's not a pleasant place to be. And he knows it. You know, that's not, that's not a joke. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I was, uh, partial, more partial to the former interpretation, the, the one where he, he's forgiven them and he's putting on an act. It's a ruse, you know? Yeah. And I can, I can definitely see how both can be true at the same time. Yeah. But I've also come over to your side a little bit more. I'd like you to point out some of the things that you noticed in the text that, that led you to that conclusion. Yeah, so what I see here, you know, it says he put them all together in prison for three days. Originally, Joseph tells them, I think you're spies. And he obviously knows they're not spies. But this is his excuse for saying, I'm going to put you all in prison. And in order to uh, validate your story, one of you has to go back and then come back with your father and brother. And they don't know what to do about that. And so they are hanging out in prison for three days. And then Joseph comes back and he says, On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. So he's already softening his stance here. And he invokes the name of God even by saying this, right? This isn't a reference to like, you know, one of many gods, right? This is a reference to their God. And so he says, Do this. And you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here where you are imprisoned. The rest of you shall go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. Thus your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they agreed to do so. So again, we see his stance softening towards them here. And not only does he agree to let all of them go but one, but he's going to send grain with them. So he is giving them what they came there for. 
he's already sort of conceding the fact that they're not spies, but he he's keeping one behind. So I think, again, we're seeing sort of a softening of the stance here. And he he's overhearing them talking and they don't realize that he can understand them uh, because they think he's just Egyptian speaking through an interpreter. And so as they're talking, they're saying, hey, you know, this is what we get for treating Joseph in this way. And so he's starting to sense that there is at least maybe a bit of remorse or recognition, at least that they did something wrong. Maybe not, maybe not quite to the point of remorse yet, but at least, hey, look, we're, we're getting what we deserve because of the way that we acted towards Joseph. And so as the story progresses here, they go uh, back to Canaan, to their father, and to Benjamin, and they can't persuade their father at first to let them take Benjamin back. You know, it's understandable, but it does seem a little bit odd that they kind of let Simeon go, right? They they just say, well, you know, I guess Simeon's lost. Uh, we can't do anything about the fact that he's he's gone. But they do finally convince their father to let them take Benjamin and go back. And the main reason here is they're going to starve, right? They're, they're out of food. Yeah, it's only after they run out of food again. Yeah. And so he says, well, I guess, you know, we can all die or we can risk it on, on sending Benjamin back is, is kind of the idea. But he's really worried about losing Benjamin. He yeah. says, uh, what does he say? He basically says, I'll die. He, he has this phrase here. It says, if harm should come to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Shoal, or to the grave, or Shoal is is hell or Hades. It's basically, it's under the ground. It's what we would just call the grave. There's not a conceptualization right now of some spiritual afterlife. It's, you know, you die and you're buried in the ground. That's Shoal. Well, Shoal is, it is more like Hades than, than hell. I, I think the concept of hell, as we have it, we get from Dante. Sure. You know, so this is this is more like Hades in in Greek literature, ancient Greek literature. So I think you know there's no there's no concept of a spiritual afterlife, but we do have that as you know a, a physical afterlife where where you just go down to this place called Hades in Greek and Sheol in Hebrew, and and actually the the concept of an afterlife doesn't of a spiritual afterlife doesn't really seem to show up until until the time of the Pharisees, which is around the time of. Christ's advent. It is. It does seem to be much later. I do want to make a note about this phrase here. I'm reading it out of NRSV. It's a little different in KJV, but the concept is the same. Bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to show, show, or the grave. So this is a bit of an allusion to the point I was making earlier about the tight relationship between this Joseph account and the Book of Mormon. Because this phrase, almost exactly like this, is used by Nephi when he's describing what's going to happen to Lehi when they're on the boat and Nephi gets tied up. And, you know, Lehi's all worried about everything that's going on because of the rebellion of his his sons, Laman and Lamuel. And so it says something like this, you know, that he was almost brought down, that his gray hairs were to be, you know, laid in the grave. And so it's really an allusion to the language of this story, which, again, really brings out that close relationship between the narrative of Joseph and the narrative of the Book of Mormon. So as it progresses here, they do finally come back in and Judah has a conversation with Joseph and explains all of, you know, what's going on with this. 
um, and why they are doing the things that they're doing, why they didn't bring their brother down in the first place and now they're bringing him and why they're so concerned about the fact that they're having to bring their brother down. So, you know, as the narrative progresses here, we we get to the point where they put the silver cup in the bag, of in Benjamin's bag, and that's the pretext for Joseph being able to bring them back again. And the, the whole idea here is that he is concerned about Benjamin, and he might be worried here that his brothers are going to treat Benjamin the same way they treated him. And so, a lot of this might be this this protection that he's trying to exert over his brother, Benjamin. Yeah, and why wouldn't he be worried? His good reason to be worried. Look what happened to him. Right, exactly. That sort of goes to the the idea of conceptualizing this narrative as sort of a test. But I don't think that that necessarily has to overshadow the fact that he really is moving towards forgiving his brothers here. He is giving them more and more each time. He gives them their money back. He gives them grain. He's trying to keep the relationship open. He's concerned that if you know he gives them all this stuff and they go back, he'll never see them again, right? And so there's always this excuse for him being able to bring them back. He's got one of them captive or they stole the cup or you know all these different reasons. And so he's constantly thinking up reasons to bring them back. It kind of reminds me of when I was first dating my wife and and it was like I was always coming up with reasons that I could, you know, ways that I could see her, right? You know, <laughs> go through the the library, that's where she was or hey, you know, right. over, and, you know, all these re- all these excuses for for being able to see her. So it's it's almost like that, you know, he's he's wanting to keep them coming back so that he can figure out how to reveal himself to them how to finagle this situation so that he gets his whole family there. He wants to see his father and so forth. Yeah, you know, so the story really is clearly a story about forgiveness. Absolutely. And yet, you know, there's more to it. As I've listened to you, Ben, you bring out that it's about love. And and it's the love that produces the forgiveness. There's a book, I I wanted to review it for, for this, you know, for this occasion. I've read it a couple of times, but I, I focused most of my time, you know, studying in the Quran and in the Bible and didn't get to reread the book. But there's a great poet. His name is Stephen Mitchell. I've mentioned him before because I've been reading his translation of Genesis. He has translations of Genesis, of Homer, of uh, quite a few things. He started with Rilke, actually, a favorite poet of, of mine and Riley's. We've actually talked about on the Latter-day Contemplation podcast, we went into poetry in one episode. But he has this beautiful book because the language of the Bible, these stories are so compressed. Now, this one, there's, there's, there are quite a few chapters to this, right? And again, in the, in the Quran, it's the only narrative in the whole book. But a lot of the stories that we've read in Genesis, think about Cain and Abel. How many verses is that? Six verses? Yeah. There's a lot going on. The, the text is so compressed. So even this story, even though we're covering how many chapters? Nine chapters? Well, if you if you look at the whole thing, it's thirty seven through fifty, but it's still really, really compressed language. And so, what Mitchell does in his beautiful book Joseph and the Way of Forgiveness is he expands this story. It's as, as it were a novelization of this very compact story, and it's beautiful. and And it is it's a story of forgiveness. Yeah, I mean, that's where Joseph arrives with this. You know, it's not just a story of forgiveness; it's also showing how his brothers are able to arrive at finally confessing and and repenting and 
and you know truly feeling sorry for for what they did and some of that is is brought about because of the affection and concern they do feel for Benjamin that Joseph is not aware of he thinks maybe they feel the same way about Benjamin that they did about him but then understanding this this comes out when he has the dialogue with Judah so they come in the whole cup thing happens Joseph says I'm going to keep Benjamin as my slave cuz he had the cup and they tear their garments it says Initially, they did that because they had said whoever has the cup is going to die. And so they thought that's what was going to happen to Benjamin. They get back and Joseph's like, Joseph says, well, he's going to be my slave. And that's a problem for them because they promise certain things to their father. They know if they tell that to their father, he's going to die. So Judah and goes so there's on the and, love and again, explains right? the whole story. Exactly. Yeah. They do have love and concern they for their father. They have love for their father. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of the, the uniting power here. They all do love their father. And so, you know, Judah goes through and explains everything that has happened to Joseph. Now, he's doing it from the perspective of his father, what his father believes to be the case. Right now, Judah knows that Joseph wasn't torn apart by a beast. He knows that they put him in that pit, and then something happened to him. There's there's varying things on the story. One of the accounts says they sold him, and then they, but the account we have here in the Bible says they stuck him in the pit, and then when they went back to look for him, he was gone because the Midianites took him out and sold. Him. So according to the Bible account, they don't know that he was sold into slavery. They actually don't know what happened to him at all. He's just gone. Right. But Judah's telling this story from the perspective of his father. And there's a point here where he says, Then your servant, my father, said to us, and again, this is Judah speaking to Joseph, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me. And I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm comes to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in sorrow to show. So there's that phrase again. But what he references here is the moment when the brothers bring the coat or the tunic of Joseph back to their father with the blood on it, with the sheep's blood on it. Now, it doesn't say in the text that the garment is torn at that point. It doesn't say anything about it being torn. And in fact, Christopher, you referenced, was it the Quranic account that says he's suspicious of it because it's not torn? That's right. Okay. That's right. Because the the story is that he was killed by a wolf. Why why isn't the tunic torn? Yeah. So why would there, you know, why would the tunic not be torn? But then we get this statement here, Judah quoting his father, and his father says, surely he's been torn to pieces. So we kind of have this idea that, you know, if we weren't trying to tie in the Quranic account, we have this idea here that Joseph was torn into pieces by a beast. Well, why would he think that he's torn into pieces if there's not some sort of substantial evidence to the fact that he was torn? And it seems like the evidence to that fact might be that the garment itself is torn into pieces because it's it's sort of this representation of Joseph. The garment is sort of the symbol of him. And so if Joseph was torn into pieces, he's seeing that out of the fact that the garment itself is torn into pieces. Well, and beyond symbolizing him, he's he's wearing the garment, right? Yeah, if he's wearing it, yeah. He can't get torn to pieces without the garment getting torn. Right. 
So if that's the case, you know, and, and I understand that there's a bit of a stretch there, but there is a logical progression there. What that does is, is it, it does shed a little bit of light on the account that we have in the Book of Mormon of this, which otherwise doesn't seem to really fit in what's going on. It's an account of, of Jacob and talking about Joseph that is difficult to fit in here. And even, even with this little bit of, of connection, there is some, some difficulty in fitting it into the account. But I'm going to pull it from, this is Alma chapter 46. And the context of this is Captain Moroni tearing his coat and writing on it for the title of Liberty. And this is the only spot in the Book of Mormon that we get a reference to this account. It's like this is a known account among the Nephites, but it's only referenced in this spot. And so this is what it says. Moroni said unto them, Behold, we are a remnant of the seed of Jacob. Yea, we are a remnant of the seed of Joseph. And remember, that's the Nephites' narrative here is that they are descendants of Joseph, whose coat was rent by his brethren into many pieces. Okay, so we have Moroni telling us here that Joseph's coat was rent by his brethren into many pieces. So in the context of the text that we have here in the Bible, it would make sense that if they were trying to convince their father that Joseph truly was dead, the coat would be torn up into a bunch of different pieces with blood all over them. They'd present those to their father. Their father would say, yeah, he's torn into a bunch of different pieces. That's much more persuasive, right, than just a coat with blood on it, which is brought out by the Quranic account that if it's not torn, you know, it's not very convincing. Right. right. So then we have this account where, okay, well, the, his brothers tore the coat up, which would also kind of make sense because they, they hate the fact that their father gave him this coat, right? This is That's right. a symbol of, of the fact that their, their father loves him more than he loves them. So going back to what Moroni says here, he says, uh, remnant of the seed of Joseph, whose coat was rent by his brethren into many pieces. Let us remember to keep the commandments of God or our garments shall be rent by our brethren and we be cast into prison, or be sold, or be slain. Okay? All referencing this Joseph account. They really see themselves as his descendants, and so they see this, this pattern repeating itself. Yea, let us preserve our liberty as the remnant of Joseph. Yea, let us remember the words of Jacob before his death. For behold, he saw that a part of the remnant of the coat of Joseph was preserved and had not decayed. And he said, even as this remnant of garment of my son hath been preserved, so shall a remnant of the seed of my son be preserved by the hand of God, and be taken unto himself, while the remainder of the seed of Joseph shall perish, even as the remnant of his garment. Okay, so there's a lot in there about, you know, his prophecy about a future thing of, of Joseph's descendants. And I'm not going to really talk about that. The, the point being here that, that he's referencing a remnant of the garment and again, that narrative informs very much the identity and narrative in the Book of Mormon of them being a remnant and, and this idea that they, they persisted, taken away, separated from their brethren in order to be a salvation at, at a latter part. We see that in the blessing of Joseph that we're going to get to in chapter 49, where it talks about you know Joseph having a blessing upon the head of him who was separated from his brethren, right? Again. The narrative of the people of Nephi is that they are separated away from their brethren into a strange land. So again, to bring this all together, we find this strange account in the Book of Mormon that doesn't seem to really fit into the text of the Bible. And we have this tiny little clue 
about what Judas says, his father says, about Joseph being torn, that kind of can bring these things together. And knowing exactly how that got in there, you know, I guess the assumption is, at least in the Book of Mormon narrative, the idea is that this story comes from the brass plates, along with some other things. And so this would have been a story existent 600 BC that was written down on the brass plates was part of their family story and tradition about Joseph and what happened with Joseph. And so it was passed down and became part of the identity of the narrative of the Nephites. You know, if that's the case, and, and that's how that went about, how is it that that fits into the narratives that we have that have survived in Genesis? And, and then the narratives that helped inform the Quranic account as well. Anyway, it's just it's really interesting how how we can you know compare and contrast those. Yeah, it is. It goes back to the theme, and especially having the, the Quran as a counterpoint to this narrative where Jacob is not convinced because the coat is not torn, the story tells us, right? Yeah. So it, it just it brings up that question again of what's the original story? Can we even know what that is? And right. <laughs> how has the story changed over time? And when I say how it's changed over time, I don't mean in, in what's the result of the changes, but the way in which it changes, right? And then the result is, is something we can see in these different accounts, right? Well, I think one of the points to bring up about, you know, you, you say, what was the original story? I mean, one of the main points here is that the original story isn't what matters. What One of the main points here is that these stories are told in a way because they they imbibe identity to the people who tell them. And that's what's yes. so powerful about the Book of Mormon narrative of this. And these people grasp onto this narrative. Like this is what gives them identity in their time of greatest need, right? This is the war with Captain Moroni. And so they grasp onto that narrative as as giving them that strength and identity of, of their ancestry. And so that's what's important here. You know, we're not going to be able to go back in, in time and say what really happened. The point here is, what did these stories mean to the people that were telling them? Right. What 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 uh, identity do they imbibe? And, and one of the things that we talked about last time with the story of Joseph is that one of the main purposes of this narrative is to establish the legitimacy of Joseph's line as the inheritor of that birthright. And, That's right. and this comes about in, you know, later kingdoms of the northern kingdom when Jeroboam, who is an Ephraimite, becomes king. And, and this becomes part of the narrative that legitimizes his kingship. It's also used as part of the narrative that legitimizes David's kingship as part of the tribe of Judah. So, Well, it's something that shows up later in this week's reading, right? We haven't gotten to it yet, but where Jacob adopts Joseph's sons, yes. Manasseh and Ephraim, and that makes Joseph become the firstborn. And that's actually attested in First Chronicles chapter 5, verse 2. But Ben, let's go back to the cup. Okay. We left the cup behind, and I wanted yeah. to talk about the cup, right? Because yeah. what is this cup? It's interesting because we have that Joseph is, well, first he's this dreamer, and then he's this interpreter of dreams. Pharaoh, those around him in prison and Pharaoh believe that this power comes from him. He says it comes from God. The Quran tells us that God is going to teach it to him, that he's putting him there for his purposes, where he is, and is going to teach it to him, this, this interpretation of dreams. At the point that we have this cup enter the story, we don't know how long it's been with Joseph, but we do know he has it now, and we know what it's for. What's it right. for, Ben? 
Yeah, this is a cup that's used in a ritual of divination. So I don't know the particulars of this, but this is a this is a totem. This is a, a talisman, I guess might be the right word, that Joseph uses in order to do his divination, maybe his dream interpretations or what. And it's used in that process, which to me kind of evokes the imagery of another Joseph That's right. looking into a hat to receive revelation as well. And and so it's just interesting, you know, we talk about divination as being this like occult practice, and, and it is, but when we say occult, this is often cast in, in like a negative or satanic way, right? But for Joseph, this is a way that he connected to God. You know, we, this worked for him, and it's a very strange thing for us to look at these days, but this is this is the way that Joseph practiced his experience of revelation. Yeah, and in the case of both Josephs, there's the way in which the divination is done, or rather the the mode, right, by which it is done, mm-hmm. is according to each Joseph's time and place. This way of divining is Egyptian. It's attested. Egyptian magic, correct. It's, it's attested in, 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 Egypt, in Egyptian history. And so it's it's interesting because both Josephs actually look into uh, something. Is it concave or convex? I, I always get the two mixed up. But here you're pouring water into the cup and you're looking at in, in the same way that, you know. That's what I was thinking. I just, I wasn't sure if that was. The yeah, that, that, that's okay. how it works. So, so it's not that different from, I mean, it's like, I don't know, like looking at um, entrails of birds, right? This is another way that divination was done in ancient Greece. Or, right, th- those kind of things. And so then with Joseph, in, in Joseph Smith's worldview and his time and place, there was very much this magic worldview that is covered by D. Michael Quinn in his book, Early Mormonism and the Magic Worldview. And that's very much a part of uh, Joseph Smith's time and place. And so he has experience already with, with his seer stone and the Urim and Thummim don't seem to be the the way for him, the mode, right? The mode that he's accustomed to and that he uses is his seer stone, which he puts into a hat and he peeps into that. And so they call it a peeping stone. The Joseph of ancient Egypt is doing this in a way that's that's typical in his time and place, which is yeah. through this goblet, this cup. Yeah. And I, I should say in the for some reason in the King James translation, it's not very obvious. And, and there you know, could be some very uh, real reasons for that when they translate. Well, yeah, it's, it's not cult. very obvious yet that's what's going on exactly. But in the NRSV, it's it's more obvious that this silver cup is actually related to his practice of divination because he, right. he tells them that he was able to tell what was going to happen to it. You brought up a point, Ben, in our conversation, you know, pre-show that these stories, we've already said, they don't have to be historical to be true. And and we don't really have access to their historicity in many ways. Although, because we do have knowledge of ancient languages, in addition to the biblical language, and because we have archaeology, and because we have anthropology, were able to do history, and, and, and they couldn't. They didn't have those tools to do history, mm-hmm. if they even had an interest in doing history. This this we've covered, right? Right. Uh, that they're doing etiology. But, you know, in our way, with our tools, we can look back and we can find or not find evidences. And you were mentioning that from Egyptologists that there's no evidence that Joseph was in Egypt, that there's no evidence that 
the Israelites were in Egypt. And yet, there are evidences, many evidences in the text that whoever wrote this text knew Egypt. Right, exactly. And I saw that attested to in, in my own study, in my own reading of commentaries, is that this is how things work in Egypt. The way the things that are being done and the way that they're being done is how they were done in Egypt in that, at that time. Correct. And, and a lot of the things that we know now about Egypt hadn't been known for a couple thousand years. You know, they've only been learned in the past couple hundred years. And we are finding that the, the things that we've learned in the past couple hundred years do match some of the practices that are brought up like in this story of Joseph. The embalming that takes 40 days and then they mourn for 70 days, that's actually the time and process that it takes to mummify a person. And that's a pretty recent discovery. Actually, the the whole process of mummification is is relatively recent within the past 50 years that they've discovered how that process actually happened. They haven't known that before and, and realize why it is that it takes that long a period of time because of the different substances and chemicals that they use to, to preserve the body. Anyway, the, the point being that, yeah, there's not really a whole lot or even any external evidence. Like archaeology doesn't tell us Joseph or the Israelites were ever in Egypt. We don't see it inscribed on anything or in any papyrus. We don't see any any reference to a people or persons that we see in the Bible. That are foreigners, by the way. Yeah, exactly. However, when we look at the story in the Bible, we see that there's a lot of internal evidence here that points to whoever wrote this story knew more about Egypt at the time than we knew before, you know, just 100 or 150 years ago. So, And, and sometimes, you know, there, there's not an argument from an absence of evidence, right? No evidence has been found, right? Sometimes there's actually evidence to the contrary, you know, as we we haven't gotten to this yet, but when the Israelite conquest of Canaan, as is told in the Bible, right. there there's no evidence for that. And there's but in this case, there's actually evidence against it. Right. And so that's important. And we'll come to that when we get to it in the text. We'll cross that bridge when we find it. But but there is the fact still that a lack of evidence is not an argument either. And there are times, too, when you think about a text like Herodotus. I know you're reading Herodotus, uh, Ben, on my recommendation. It's it's one of the funnest reads in ancient texts, you know, bar none. You know, it really is. Are you finding it enjoyable? Yeah, it's just the reason I've found it so interesting isn't necessarily the content. It's the way that he talks about things. Right. It's it's entering into that ancient worldview and... And and it's very difficult to grasp at first, but once you start seeing and understanding the way that Herodotus is describing things, you start understanding a little more about that ancient worldview, and that's what's so fascinating about it to me. The content is, is harder to digest and sometimes tedious, but just the way that he presents the things is, is so interesting. I and my kids all found it really fun. I recommend it to anyone who, you know, if the, if the Bible is the only ancient text you've ever read... Here's another ancient text, and as you as you've pointed out, Ben, you get a sense of what an ancient text is, right? That the Bible isn't the only ancient text, right? There's that. Right. And also, you know, the the book, by the way, is called the Histories. It's the Histories of Herodotus, uh-huh. and history is from the Greek historia, which means sort of investigations. You know, so yeah. Herodotus is going around trying to find out how things became Inquiries. the way they are. Inquiries is a good a good way to translate it. Yeah. He's going around inquiring as to how things became the way they are. So etiology. 
but he's considered the father of history, he's considered the father of anthropology, and he's considered the first travel writer. So I wanted to point out in connection with Herodotus that there are things that Herodotus said were, you know, said, well, okay, he doesn't always say they're true. He reports what's told to him and he always makes it a point to say, I'm not saying this is true. I'm just telling you this is what I was told. So he's a reporter. He goes around asking Uh questions and he reports what he finds. But he did report that there were in Persia, I think it was, that there were these dog-sized ants that dug up gold. (laughs) Dog-sized ants that dug up gold. And so because of this, his text was dismissed, at least that part of it, as nonsense, just this complete nonsense for a very long time until recently. Well, the way that he talks about it isn't in a fantastical way, though, either. No, not at all. Uh, He just talks about how it's a matter of fact. It's very matter of fact. You would think that if you have an insect that's the size of a dog, it would be talked about in, in certain terms. And he doesn't talk about it, you know, in fantastical terms. It's just a matter of fact. And see, if we'd had you as a Herodotus scholar, that might have helped Ben, because that should be our first clue. Yep. And so scholars recently realized, they realized that there was a confusion between the word, the Persian word for ant and marmot. Ant, yeah. Right. And so it turns out that there is an animal the size of a dog that does dig up gold dust, and that's the marmot. Yeah. And so it was just a thing. It was just one of these lost in translation things. And I think we've also found, uh, scholars have found, archaeologists have found evidence of Troy that was thought to be mythical, yes. right, from, from yeah, Homer. about 100 from, years ago or so. Yeah, from the Iliad and the Odyssey, yeah. So, so evidences may be forthcoming. But the veracity, the truthfulness of the text doesn't hang on its historicity. It hangs on the value that it brings to us. And, and you've pointed out, Ben, that it is the meaning that it gives to us. And it's interesting, you also pointed out that the meaning varies from context to context. It's personal, right? And and you reminded me also of a a podcast. uh, I had Shiloh Logan on. uh, He substituted for Riley once and on Latter-day Contemplation. And we talked about the stories that we tell ourselves. And so these are stories that we tell ourselves. And we're told to do this. We're told to liken the scriptures unto ourselves. And as a matter of fact, the closing verse of Surat Yusuf in the Quran, I'll read it, reads, there is certainly a moral in their accounts for those who possess intellect. And that's in the accounts of, of, you know, in in this Joseph story. This Quran is not a fabricated discourse. Rather, it is a confirmation of what was revealed before it. And that's referring to the Bible. And an elaboration of all things and guidance and mercy for people who have faith. So for people who have faith, and for people who have who possess intellect, it says, there is a moral in these accounts. Yeah. There's a moral to the story. And this is not the same thing as morality. I've already talked about how if you're looking for morality in the Bible, you're not going to find it. You have to already have your morality in place before you go into the Bible because you'd have to – well, you do. We know you do because you go into it and you reject certain ideas and you lay hold of others. And you, you like the ones that actually agree with your morality and the ones that you find immoral, you reject. And yet they're <laughs> put forward in the Bible as, as, you know, for example, you can, if your son is disobedient, you can kill him. Now, listen, I've mentioned before, there, there have been times that I felt like maybe this would be a good rule to have, but it's, it's just not, right? I'm right. kidding. I mean, it's, I, I can't, I can't be serious, right? Yeah. Sometimes the meaning that we get from the stories is secondary. And, and I say that in that, you know, we read them and sometimes we're like, I don't know what this means to me. 
And so sometimes if we have a hard time pulling out a meaning for us, one of the ways to go about that is to say, okay, I can't figure out what this means to me, but what did it mean to the people that were telling the story? And then once we understand what it meant to the people that were telling the story, sometimes then we can pull meaning out of that. Right. So that it can be really helpful for us to ask that question. Um, And sometimes it's a very important intermediary question. What did it mean to the people that told this story? I'm trying to remember where this came from, but the the idea is that especially the Old Testament, it wasn't, it was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. Exactly. Right. That, and that's, so it's written in a way that's, that's, uh, from our perspective, cryptic in some ways. And so we have to shift our mindset sometimes to, to really view it. And even if we uh, decrypt it, as, as we did a little bit with the, the Rachel and Leah story, we still have to do, as you said, that's a story where we really want to do what you said, Ben. Hmm. And, and because we're, we're not going to understand it and take a moral away from it that is, uh, like, like the one that was perhaps intended by the author for it, for the people that it was written to, right? Yeah, yeah. But we can find our own meaning in it. Right. And so this is, I think, what the, what the church does with its manual, right? The manual that I never look at, that I make a point not to look at, <laughs> because I want to go into the text and, and find my own meaning. Sure. And the same thing yeah. goes for the chapter headings. We've already covered not reading yeah, chapter headings. To you. Right? Yeah. So I, as we mentioned before, that seems to be the, the overarching, most powerful sort of thing coming out of this story is is that it's about forgiveness. Yes. And you know, you you have these brothers that do about the worst thing that brothers can do to another, you know, besides killing him. And somehow all these years later, he's able to forgive them because he's able to see that no matter what happened, God was able to bring good from it. Not that the thing in and itself was good, but that God was able to bring good from it. Now, Joseph actually sees the whole thing as orchestrated by God from the beginning. And I think that's a little hard for me to swallow that a bit. Like, it's hard for me to swallow that, you know, his brothers were were actually doing what God wanted them to do when it says they sold him, even though they, they didn't actually sell him, right? They stuck him in the pit and somebody else sold him. It's hard for me to swallow that, but what I think Joseph is saying is that God is able to bring about his purposes no matter what it is that man does. Well, and remember that it's ex post facto yeah. that the text tells us that Joseph thinks that everything that's happening is you know, as it should be. And that's just, right. again, that's after the fact. That's the story that we tell ourselves about what happens. You know, this has been a, a long-standing joke between uh, Shiloh and me. Every time I see a book like the one I'm about to describe at, at the bookstore, I take a picture of it and send it to Shiloh with my own comment. You have these books that say things like, everything happens for a reason. Yeah. Right? And so I take a yeah. picture of it and I send it and I say, and sometimes the reason is you did something stupid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sometimes the reason is you did something stupid and you make bad choices. Right. And then so then you tell yourself a story about it and you make the best of it. And that's a good thing, right? You make the best of it. You learn your lesson. You say, this is what came out of it. And you find the good. It's looking for that silver lining. Look, uh, I'm in the midst of chaos here in my house. And I have been for months because of, you know, some uh, a plumbing leak. And now the plumbing has been replaced and it's still chaos because now we have sheet rockers. And next comes, you know, remodeling the bathrooms. But in the end, 
That's the one thing this house needed, was bathroom remodeling. So guess what story we're going to tell ourselves, right? It's, yeah, so we get that we get the bathrooms remodeled in the end. That's great. But it has been, it's been hell. It's been hell to go through this, you know? Right. Sometimes we want each step of the process to in and of itself have some meaning because of the way that it turns out. And, you know, that that seems to be what, what Joseph is saying here. But I think from a broader perspective, we don't have to justify each point along the process. We don't have to say, okay, it's it's good that Joseph was in prison or it's good that, the you know, he was sold and he was a slave. We don't have to say that these things are good. What we can say is that ultimately God can bring good out of any situation. Yes, and hopefully your comment, that comment is helpful for the listener that is trying to find a way to make every step of the way mean something in that way, because your comment is for our time. Yeah. And and for better or for worse, something shifted in the way we see the world. And in antiquity, everything that was happening, God was making happen. Hmm. I don't know if you've seen the movie Troy. I think it's called Troy. Yeah, the one with Brad Pitt in a miniskirt. Is, is how my, my kids talk about it. And so this is a depiction of mostly the Iliad, parts of the Odyssey or the Aeneid or the Post-America, but mostly the Iliad. And so what's missing, though, if you watch this film and if you've read the Iliad, is the gods. Hmm. Everything that happens in the Iliad, when someone throws their spear and it hits its mark, it's because one of the gods made it hit its mark. Hmm. That's what's going on behind the scenes, right? You see yeah. the warrior throwing. When you watch the Hollywood film, you just see the warrior throw the spear and it hits its mark. And so it's the warrior who did it. But in the text, in the Iliad, in Homer's Iliad, there's a God who made that happen. Everything that happens, happens because the God is on one, on one person's side. And maybe there's another God or another goddess on the other person's side, but the one is stronger than the other. So the whole struggle that looks like it's between men is between gods in this Greek context, you know. But again, that's the ancient worldview that everything that is happening is God. And so, you know, there's a way some people choose to to look at life that way today, and that's possible too. But that's not usually the way people look at the world today. Not since the Enlightenment. Hmm. Okay. Well, I mean there's there's a lot more in these chapters, but I think we've we've gotten to the parts that I would say for me were most meaningful. We could probably talk for another hour about the rest of these chapters, but uh, like I said, for for me, I'm satisfied with what we've talked about so far. Yeah, me too. I wanted to really go through the 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 story of Joseph and his forgiveness of his brothers. Yeah. All right. So I think we can sign off at this point. We want to again thank those who are editing, as we try to do every week: Tom Bogle, Kyle Swingle. Shiloh's helping out with getting things posted and and so forth. You know, I think it was COVID that kind of upset our groove, so to speak. But, you know, we've really been trying to make an effort to get these out in time for people to listen to them and start thinking about what they think about these chapters well early in the week before they get to their discussions with their family or their church friends or, or whatever. Um, but sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes these come out later. Hopefully that those can still be of value and enrich future conversations um, when that sort of stuff comes up anyway. Yeah. And thanks also to to Lindsay Olin for, you know, all that she does behind the scenes. She's again the the heartbeat of Latter-day Peace Studies. Thank for you, sure. Lindsay. 
And thank you all for listening. And please, again, keep the, the feedback coming. We really appreciate your feedback. Thank you for that. And thank you for listening. For Latter-day Peace Studies, I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson.